Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurier Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, and I am the Communications and Digital Media Manager at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Today, I'm joined by Sean Spear. He's the MLI Program Lead on Domestic Policy. He's also a Monk Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. How are you, Sean? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Brett. And, and uh, thanks for all the work that you're doing at the Institute. Uh, listeners should know that, that Brett has played a major role in, in expanding MLI's work on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms. And of course, our videos that I hope many of you have seen. And, and of course, uh, this, this podcast uh, that you're listening to. So we're extremely fortunate to have Brett as a, as a member of the team and, and uh, look forward to seeing all of the new digital media developments uh, that he pursues in 2019. Well, oh, thanks, Sean. You flatter me. <laughs> My work wouldn't be much without the amazing work of you and the other senior fellows. And uh, in particular uh, today, I was hoping we could talk about a recent commentary paper that you put out, which is titled Working Class Opportunity and the Threat of Populism in Canada. Now, in, in your commentary, you discuss how populism has risen in other parts of the world, particularly in the United Kingdom and the United States. And uh, you just you determine some of the causes of that and come to the conclusion that populism could come come to the fore in Canada in a similar way. Do you want to just uh, discuss your commentary for those who might not have uh, read it? Well, I'll, I'll take for granted that uh, everyone has read the commentary, or at least they ought to. But what, what I will say, maybe just to, to start, is that I, I wrote the commentary really for two reasons. The first is I wanted to engage this ongoing debate about the causes and sources of populism. Uh, listeners will know that there are different perspectives out there. Some who argue that contemporary populism is principally a function of economics, that it, it's principally a function of globalization and the economic anxiety of a cohort commonly described as the, quote, left behinds. But there's also a perspective that populism is not at its core uh, about economics, that it's principally an expression of cultural anxieties driven by immigration, changing demographics, and even in some cases, uh, racist or xenophobic impulses. So one of the things I wanted to do in this paper is to try to engage uh, that debate and, and reach some of my own conclusions about the sources and causes of populism. And we can talk maybe a bit about the way that I come down on that issue. The second reason I wrote the paper is I've been thinking a lot lately about the share of the Canadian population without post-secondary education. Uh, we talk a lot in this country about the representation or the representativeness of our politics. Um, people will know that the current prime minister has made it a priority to have 50-50 gender representation in this cabinet, for instance. Uh, there's occasionally talk about dedicating seats in parliament for the indigenous population so that there's indigenous representation in Canada and various other ways in which we talk about diversity in our politics, representation of different perspectives, different voices. I think all of that, of course, is to be commended. But I think the cohort, the population group that's least represented in our politics, um, yet oftentimes is neglected when we talk about uh, representation and diversity and so on, are the Canadian population without post-secondary degrees. If, if you look at the composition of our parliament, if you look at the composition of the public service, the senior ranks of those who are making policy in Canada, virtually all of them have post-secondary education. And so when they think and talk about these different policy issues, whether it's resource development or labor market policies or 
tax policies and so on, they oftentimes, I think, bring to that discussion a confirmation bias about the role of post-secondary education. Uh, but the truth is, as we describe in the paper, about 37% of Canadians uh, between the ages of 25 and 64 don't have post-secondary degrees. This is not an insignificant mm. share of the population. And it's, it's worth mentioning that Canada has the highest levels of post-secondary attainment. So while there's room probably for um, that number to fall um, as um, post-secondary access is expanded and demography pushes out an older cohort without post-secondary degrees, that number is never going to be zero. And in fact, in many ways, it's, it's as I say, already higher than anywhere else in the Western world. And so one of the things that the paper aims to do is to put a fine point on this and to say, as we talk about public policy, as we talk about governance, as we talk about the types of issues that policymakers need to be confronting, I think there's a strong case um, that we need to do a better job putting um, those without post-secondary degrees, nearly four in 10 people um, closer to the center of the policy debate. Not only do I think that is correct from a basic responsiveness or representation perspective, I think it's also important um, if we want to make sure that Canada, our politics remain protected from some of the populism that we're observing elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good point, though, on the, the notion that it's working class people who are most at risk. And so uh, those at home who are astute listening might know that because they're working class people who are at risk, this isn't necessarily a cultural assessment. This isn't necessarily on, on uh, racial or other grounds, but rather that it's uh, tied predominantly with people's ability to change their work environments and and the sort of skills that they have in the evolving economy. So that also leads into another point in your paper, which is that you primarily believe that uh, populist impulses come mostly from economic sources. So that people who are in insecure situations economically are more likely to respond to populist messaging. Do you want to just uh, break that down a bit? Yeah. So this this speaks to the, the, the first point I made, which is one of the things the paper aims to do is engage this debate about whether the, the, the explanation for contemporary populism is principally economic or principally cultural. And of course, it's not a black or white issue. Uh, it's no doubt that these issues interact with each other. It would be wrong to say that uh, one is occurring at the expense of the other. The truth is obviously more complicated than that. But I think on balance, on net, I find the arguments that it's mostly about economics, or at least primarily about economics, and, and then only secondarily about culture, I find those lines of arguments more persuasive. And the paper sets out an explanation for why why I think that it is principally, or at least primarily, an economic phenomenon. There's, a, as I say, a few reasons for that. One, I think, uh, interesting proof point is that millions of Americans voted for Barack Obama and Donald Trump. It seems to me the argument that those voters were principally motivated by culture or even racism fails to stand up to logic. Another argument um, that, that the paper engages is this question of, of the economic characteristics of populist voters. What's clear looking at the data that those who voted for Trump or those who voted in favor of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union, the principal commonality was education level. So it wasn't necessarily about income, as some people have observed. But the, the principal characteristic, the, the, the major determinant was education level, which is logic uh, intuitive to me. These are the people who are most at risk and perceive themselves most at risk to the economic forces of 
technology, of innovation, of trade, and so on. And so I think it's these people who were drawn to populist politics because of those circumstances. Obviously, it's conceivable that something that starts as an economic phenomenon or motivated by economic considerations can assume or can manifest itself in expressions of cultural anxieties. Immigration is an interesting file in this regard because it both has an economic and a cultural dimension, of course. Um, but as I say, I think the, the paper ultimately comes down on the, on the side that to understand populism means to understand the, the economic underpinnings of populism. And, and before I stop rambling, just to connect the dots, if you accept that premise, a greater focus on the conditions uh, or opportunities for those without post-secondary education in Canada, in my view, makes great sense. So to that point, you mentioned that 36% of Canadians kind of fall into this precarious category, of working, uh, working Canadians, that is. So there are people without post-secondary educations, and they're vulnerable, so to speak, in an, in an economy which is consistently moving away, at least in Canada, from uh, secondary industry, and we're seeing problems even with primary industry in Canada, particularly with regards to low commodity prices and how that's been impacting the, uh, the oil and gas sector in Alberta. So with, with the tensions that we're seeing in Alberta, the protests associated with that, is there a risk that this sort of thing could get worse in Canada? It would, you know, there, there are sources of economic turmoil that are kind of on the horizon, whether or not it's in uncertainty in the United States, the Brexit vote coming up, or any other number of factors. The, uh, you know, the Canadian economy is, is always vulnerable to outside influences. Could we potentially see a scenario in which some sort of economic retraction leads to I guess, a, a greater populist force in Canada, the likes of which we've seen in other countries? I think the short answer is yes, but it's worth stepping back for a second. You cited some potential short-term economic factors that could harm the Canadian economy and in turn harm the interests of Canadian workers, particularly those without post-secondary education. I think that's correct. But the trends that I talk about in the paper aren't short-term trends. They are long-term trends. The truth is, for most of Canadian history, those without post-secondary education had various employment avenues that they could choose and earn uh, a living, uh, earn, earn a salary that would enable them to own a home, raise a family, retire comfortably, and so on. As you say, the long-term trends in Canada, economic trends, are moving in a direction that are that is narrowing those avenues, those options for people with that educational background. If you just think about it, how many sectors in Canada can someone without a post-secondary degree, whether it's university or college um, or, or a trade, find um, stable or secure employment right. that would enable them to raise a family, own a home, and so on? There, there are very few left. Uh, and the reason why I think your, your point about the energy sector is so important because it's one of the last avenues. It's one of the last opportunities for people without post-secondary education to, to earn a, a reasonable living. Uh, and in fact, that's not a rhetorical point. It, it, it's borne out in the evidence. UBC economist Kevin Milgan has shown, uh, for instance, that for the past 10 or 15 years, Alberta's oil sands have essentially sustained Canada's middle class. Just, just one other proof point in this regard. For most of the past 10 or 15 years, income levels for those with post-secondary and those without post-secondary, a gap has grown between them in most Canadian provinces. Alberta is the one exception. The gap between uh, those with post-secondary and those without post-secondary actually fell 
over the past 10 or 15 years. And so it really was a, a worker's paradise for this vulnerable group. And one of the things that the paper aims to help policymakers think about is if you accept my premise that this is a cohort that policymakers need to spend more time focused on, then public policies that harm oil sands development, either in the name of environmental considerations or in the name of indigenous reconciliation or any other worthwhile policy objectives, the consequence may be that we harm one of the last outlets for opportunity for this vulnerable group. I, I think this idea, well uh, intuitive, too often is neglected in how we think and talk about the policy trade-offs inherent in many of the issues that policymakers are grappling with. And I think part of the explanation for why is something I mentioned earlier, which is so few people sitting around the policy table actually bring the lens of circumstances for Canadians without post-secondary education. So then we've got we've got a lot of different issues then happening with long-term trends, short-term problems. We then also have a way in which we've constructed our government that's technocratic in nature that doesn't necessarily respond to the needs of these individuals. So what should government do then? There, it seems that there's you know trends which are outside of the government's control. I don't think anyone's suggesting that we need to really be clamping down on the, the dynamism of the economy, so to speak. And also there are there are people who have solutions on both the left and the right. Populist responses on the left have uh, have mostly centered around redistribution of wealth as, as a means to lift up those who are disadvantaged, whereas populism on the right, we've seen it more perhaps turn towards the sort of cultural elements like in the United States and with Brexit. Both sides, I, I assume you might have uh, some issue with, but what do you think would be an actual effective public policy program to advance the interests of uh, working class Canadians? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. And a good summary, I think, of our discussion today. I think we need to step back and, and think about this in, in, in various ways. A public policy agenda centered around the interests of those without post-secondary degrees is going to touch on various policy areas, different policy levers. And I, I think it's a subject matter that here at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute, we hope to do more significant thinking in the coming year. Maybe I could just zero in on a few examples. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned earlier resource development. Uh, I think the resource sector has, the past several years, hoovered up, uh, if I can put it that way, uh, these workers. And so as we think about the framework, the regulatory framework, the policy framework around resource development in Canada, we need to make sure that as we make trade-offs on these different issues, uh, whether it's the environment or indigenous reconciliation and so on, that we are thinking about the extent to which it will help or hinder employment prospects for those without post-secondary. A second area I think that requires um, more thinking is around vocational or technical education. Uh, the McDonald-Laurier Institute has uh, released a paper in the past handful of months on some of the strengths and weaknesses of our post-secondary model. I think we need to make sure that we're establishing pathways for those who, for whom post-secondary isn't an option, uh, where they can get skills and experience that uh, are gonna lend themselves to positive um, labor market outcomes. That means probably more experiential learning in high schools. It means 
um, various co-op programs or even uh, different employment subsidies early in people's career. If you think about it, right now we, we spend billions and billions of dollars in this country subsidizing post-secondary education, mm-hmm. um, but we do very little for the roughly 40% for whom post-secondary isn't, isn't the choice. I think there's room to rebalance both public spending, but it's more importantly, a policy imagination when it comes to questions of education. And then the third area, if you accept this premise, if you use this framework for thinking about public policy, that we're going to place a greater emphasis on the interests and the opportunities for those without post-secondary education, then I think it's logical to look at our income support programming, our tax and transfer system, to see the extent to which it is helping or hindering these folks. I'm drawn to the idea of uh, wage subsidies, for instance. If we're going to have an income support model, let's make sure that it's one that is tipping the scales in favor of work. Right now, we spend billions of dollars through employment insurance and social assistance and other programs that don't tip the scale in favor of, of work. So I think wage subsidies, which is an idea that has, I think, support across the spectrum, been championed by Warren Cass, the Manhattan Institute uh, on the right, and Miles Korek at New York University on on the left. I think that's an example of a type of work-oriented reform that that governments ought to consider as it seeks to rebalance the the public policy agenda uh, in favor of of those without post-secondary education. So with um, kind of our time coming to a close, I've got, I've got two questions for you. I'll be a um, bit more brief this time. <laughs> no problem. Uh, the, the first is 2019 is an election year. This, the conversation this year is often going to be guided about the election and what it means for Canadians, the choice that's in front of them. Uh, how do you see the kind of the forces that we've been talking about that might lead to populism in Canada? How do you, how do you see that impacting both the election and, and how parties respond to these kind of needs. And lastly, on net, do you think that populism is something that we ought to be preventing or stymieing through policies? Or does this kind of re-recognition of the role of working class people represent a positive opportunity to improve public policy? So first question, election. Second question, is populism good or bad? Yeah, great. both great questions. I'll be as brief as I can. On, on the first question, I, what's interesting, Brett, is I think that diagnosing the sources and causes of populism is important for making judgments about the right prescriptions or solutions. And so if you accept my argument that it is principally or primarily an economic impulse and only secondarily a cultural one, then that will lead you in certain policy directions, some of the ones we've described. If you make the other conclusion, then it may push you in in cultural directions. And so one of my concerns about a mixed misdiagnosis is I, I think immigration will loom larger in the Canadian election campaign and, and in and around the campaign than it probably ought to because people are making a bet about the presence of some of these cultural impulses in Canada. Uh, obviously, um, Maxime Bernier and the People's Party are aiming to seize on that issue. And I think there'll be some pressure on the Conservative Party to follow suit or at least also respond to this, these perceived impulses. And so I, I, I think it's, it's incumbent on the parties to first step back and ask themselves, what are the sources and causes of populism around the world and how can it manifest itself in Canada? And I think doing that will hopefully guide a more 
sophisticated and evidence-based discussion about the role of public policy. On the second question about the utility of populism, what, what I would say is that populism can be a mechanism to help policymakers understand what issues are animating people, especially, as you say, those who may have been excluded uh, or whose voices may have been marginalized in the political discussion in the past. I think it's Cass Mudd who says that, the, you know, at its best, populism is about repoliticizing issues that have been depoliticized for one reason or the other. So if populism is a mechanism to help policymakers identify the issues that they need to respond to with constructive public policy, then I think it can be a useful force in helping us make judgments about uh, the role of politics, the role of public policy, and so on. Obviously, populism can have a negative side as well, the extent to which it necessarily seems to involve, for lack of a better term, othering the idea of separating people into different groups or categories. I think that's a deeply corrosive aspect of populism that uh, can be harmful to the body politic. And, and I think, if anything, it only reinforces something that we've been talking a lot about at the McDonald Law Institute, including in, in this latest commentary, that it behooves policymakers to take seriously economic and social conditions in which populism is bred and ensure that policymakers are listening and hearing and seeing how people are, what people are experiencing. And in turn, putting forward constructive, meaningful policy ideas to, to get at them. I think that the experience elsewhere shows that when policymakers fail to do that, populism, including the, the negative aspects of populism, can, can take shape. Uh, and so maybe just in sum, just to wrap up, uh, I would say if I had one wish in 2019, it's that policymakers are proactive about thinking, uh, reconceptualizing a policy agenda for those without post-secondary education so that they have real meaningful opportunities in, in Canada. And that involve, that will involve various policy levers or policy tools. But if I can just wrap up on one point, it's that if we aren't careful about seeing resource development in, in general in the oil sands in particular as a outlet, an economic outlet for this cohort in our population, we may make choices that in the end we regret. And so this will be a theme that we continue to talk about on this podcast and, of course, in our writing and commentary in 2019 and ongoing. Well, thank you once again, Sean, so much for your, your insight on this important issue. I'm sure it'll be an animating one in the coming days, months, and perhaps even years to come. So thanks for, uh, for sharing your thoughts. Thanks for having me and, and, and thanks for listening. That was uh, Sean Spear. He's the Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute and he's the Program Director for Domestic Policy for MLI as well. <laughs>